turmoil in the Trump administration. Jennifer Messer strikes back at the Associated Press. That plus Attorney General Hill backs tougher drug policy and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending May 19th, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, a chaotic few days in the Trump administration amid the president's firing of FBI Director Comey and the Russia investigation. Here's some of the things that happened in Washington this week. Monday reports that President Trump disclosed highly classified intelligence obtained by Israel to Russian officials at the White House. Tuesday, the reveal of a memo from former FBI Director James Comey saying that Trump asked him to let go of the investigation into former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Wednesday, the appointment of a special counsel, former FBI Director Robert Mueller, to lead the investigation into Russia's influence on the 2016 election. And amidst all of that were Indiana lawmakers' reactions. That includes applause from Mueller's appointment from Democrats and Republican Senator Todd Young. And Republican Congressman Todd Rakita attacked Washington liberals' phony attacks after news of President Trump's disclosure to the Russians. What the heck is going on in the Trump administration? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, Nikki Kelly, Statehouse reporter for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette, and John Katzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse reporter Brandon Smith. Michael Bryan, if you're a Republican lawmaker in the state, how do you respond to all of this? I think these Republican lawmakers are going home this weekend. Um, I think they're going to be faced with a constituency that, for the Republicans, most of these people overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump. They continue to overwhelmingly support Donald Trump. They sent him there to... They rolled a stick of dynamite into Washington, D.C. to prevent this kind of stuff. So we've had a week's week worth now. Well, we've had weeks worth, months worth now, but we've had a particularly contentious week um, of the press running stories on anonymous sources, on former Obama administration sources, and throwing a lot of mud at this, at this Trump administration and sidelining uh, the agenda. I think, these, I think if, if I'm a Republican lawmaker and I go home, my constituents are saying, go back there, figure out how to break through all this, repeal Obamacare, reform the tax code, do everything we did when we elected uh, this president and this Congress uh, back in November. If you were advising a Republican lawmaker, <laughs> what would you tell the them? Press, you'd have to shut Donald Trump up. I mean, he can't stay consistent with his message for one news cycle. I mean, he says one thing, then he sends somebody out to say something else, then he backtracks and he goes back and back. He doesn't know what he's doing. And if I were a lawmaker, a Republican or otherwise, I'd run as far from him as I can. Because I think this is going to be the most corrupt administration in the history of this country by the time he's done. I really do. I think we're going to be selling visas to the Russians. We're going to be doing all kinds of things because that's the art of the deal. And I'd run from him. Whatever he had in last November is going to evaporate by 2018. Mike talked about something that I'm curious about. The third district uh, congressman, Jim Banks, has sort of been on a lot of interviews, done a lot of statements this week, expressing concern that it's, we're losing focus from the things we said were the priorities. Is it possible amidst all of this sort of chaos 
for Congress to shut it all out and try and get stuff done, or do, or is it impossible to get that done? Well, the circuits that surrounded Washington because of all of the things that the president has done has made it very difficult to focus. And so when you can't focus, you don't go to the agenda. When was the last time you heard anything about the American Health Care Act? You haven't. When was the last time you heard anything about the budget? You haven't. And that's because it all gets buried by all of this falderall from, uh, from all the stuff around the, the clown show. And so until that breaks... Um, they, they aren't going to get anything done. Now, if you're Jim Banks and what you're doing is you're saying, okay, we, you know, we support the president, but we want this to stop. And I think Ann's right. You have to get the president to at least quit tweeting and counteracting all of the things that all of his people in his administration have been doing. And if you can get relative quiet, then you might be able to get some of that. Because I do think there's a hunger among people uh, to get to the substance of the issue. Now, that doesn't diminish. People want to get, if, if there's a scandal, they want to get to the bottom of that too. But I think they really want to see things ratchet down and maybe focus on some things that need to be dealt with. I mentioned Jim Banks's uh, comments. Todd Rakita has taken a slightly different tact, which is attack the Washington liberals and the media and everybody trying to tear down the president. Is that going to play well in Indiana? Sure it will. I, I mean, I think it will with a lot of folks. But, I mean, part of the reason this stuff is coming out is, you know, like as we mentioned, his tweeting, the, the president, you know, when he tweets about tapes and, you know, Puts Director Comey. Yes, you have to be question, you know, quotation marks. You know, better hope there aren't tapes. Well, then what do you think? The next thing is, oh, there's memos, you know. I mean, he is feeding some of this. So the whole, you know, the media is to blame only goes so far. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. Now, back in January, we asked you this question, and we're asking it again. Given all the controversy surrounding Donald Trump, will Mike Pence become president before the end of 2017? A, yes, or B, no. Last week's question... Should a special prosecutor be appointed to continue an investigation into Russian interference in the election? 84% say yes, 16% say no, and of course we saw a special counsel appointed this week. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org IWIR and look for the poll. Jennifer Messer, wife of Congressman Luke Messer, this week sharply criticized a recent story that she's paid $20,000 a month to do part-time legal work for the city of Fishers. The detailed story from the Associated Press last week showed that Messer's deal with Fishers is for about $240,000 a year for primarily part-time legal and economic development work the last two years while the Messers live in the Washington, D.C. area. In an op-ed to the Indianapolis Star responding to that story, Messer slammed it as unfair, intellectually dishonest, and sexist. In a statement, the Associated Press says it stands by its story. And Eleni, we talked last week on the show about how the AP story really reflected poorly on Fishers and not necessarily Jennifer Messer. So is this response from Jennifer Messer an overreaction? Oh, I think it clearly is. I mean, nobody's talking about the fact that any uh, educated woman, or any woman for that matter, can have a career outside the home and can be justly compensated for that. The question is not whether this is sexism, it's whether it's cronyism. This would be as much a story, in my judgment, as if it were David Brooks on the receiving end of the largesse of Fishers, who's the uh, husband of Congresswoman Susan Brooks, if they were living in Washington. All she has to do to put this story to bed is put her hours out there. If she's worked the 1,500 hours that were represented to us last week, then that's a fair compensation for what she did. But if she's worked 
worked one hour or five hours, then we have to look at what's going on here, whether it's, whether it's being paid for legal work or whether it's subsidizing the career of Luke Messer in Congress. And it has nothing to do with sexism. Anybody in a political uh, position would know that his or her spouse or his or her offspring would be subject to the same kind of scrutiny, particularly when it's taxpayer dollars. If you were advising the Messers on this, would you have advised that sort of op-ed? I don't think you ever want to keep a uh, press cycle going on, on something like this, but I understand where, where Jennifer Messer was coming from. There is uh, this perception among the, the wives, not the husbands, of um, most oftentimes, um, of a member of Congress, a member of the legislature. there are only so many more elected male elected officials. <laughs> but, it's not, but it's not unusual. I mean, I've experienced this in my own, in my own life. My wife's a, a school teacher. She was on the State Board of Education. She was appointed by Governor Daniels. I worked for Governor Daniels. So the, the whisper campaign at the time was, well, gee, I wonder how she got that job. Well, the answer was, she was a three-time teacher of the year with two master's degrees. She was already advising the governor on education policy. You know, but you never get there. You know, so I understand why, why she reacted this way. Um, you know, Fisher's, I'm never going to win an argument publicly that says $20,000 a month is, is the amount of money you ought to make with your average guy. And I totally get that. Uh, the city of Fisher's is one of the fastest-growing cities in the country. They've got a great mayor in Scott Fadden. He's, he's a no-nonsense guy. He's, he's a begrudging politician who, if he could do the job he's doing and not be mayor, he'd do it. Um, so this isn't a political guy who's just handing out favors either. They're actually trying to get a lot of good things done in Fishers. Mike just brought up something that I wanted to ask you about, Nikki, which is the idea of this keeps the story alive another week. We talked about this on the show last week. We probably wouldn't have talked about it again, except that then she wrote an op-ed, and it's led to this more war of words, and now involving Todd Rakita, a potential opponent. Why, why keep the story alive? Aren't you just shooting yourself in the foot here? Well, I think I think she was probably genuinely hurt that it was made out to seem like she wasn't earning that money. And so in that manner, I see why they did it. Obviously, though, it does continue the cycle. And now with Todd Rakita jumping on board, he's now sent out a fundraising email saying, you know, accusing Luke Messer's campaign of planting sort of a retaliation story against him. And, you know, they're bringing up residency issues for, for Luke Messer now. Um, so it just, it just now it's spiraling, spiraling into something that's not even related to Jennifer Messer. That's right. So this is arguably the first, neither of them are candidates right. officially yet. Right. Todd Rakita and Luke Messer have not officially announced yeah, anything. Long to talk about time to go. Yes, but, <laughs> but. Good luck with that. Yeah, but this is really the first sort of any of these stories. And this is arguably the tip of the iceberg when it comes to a campaign like this. Is this, uh, is this a bad sign for things to come? This is a nightmare potentially for the Indiana Republican Party uh, because of exactly what you said. You've got two candidates who want this very badly, and they've shown that by uh, making innuendo and references to things about these revelations. And, you know, these revelations may very well have come about because of some whispering in ears of reporters. And so you're going to have a heavyweight brawl. This is Ali and Frazier. And um, if you're the Republican establishment in Indiana, you really don't want that for two reasons. One, they're going to bloody each other and just let Joe Donnelly skate for a long time. And they're going to spend a lot of resources doing it that they could marshal for, this, for the fall. And, 
And this goes back to, I, I think Mayor Fadness has handled this about as poorly as he could have. If, if the Associated Press is calling about such a contract, you know, the first thing you do is you get all the facts together, and assuming she's worked all those hours, you put that out there, you do comparables with other cities, and yes, it's a story, but it's not a scandal. You know, it's just a story. Just a story. And she can say, look, this is what I've done. It's just a story now. It's not a scandal well, now. Well, it, it is potentially a political problem for her sure. now. Yeah. But I don't think it would I be if you put it... If scandal you, in the well, okay. state's largest cities. Okay. Those are two different but things. He, all right. Thank you for the, you know, the correction. But my point, is still the, my point's still the same. You put out all the facts and let the facts speak for themselves. And if they speak to her defense, the issue's over. To, to John's point, if you're one of the if you're Kyle Hupfer leading the Indiana Republican Party, are you looking at what's already going on without any official campaign work starting yet? Are you a little concerned about what you're seeing? Uh, honestly, ten years ago, I would have said a you know a big primary fight like this between the money is an issue because there's only it's finite um, and you've got to go figure out a way to raise more of it from people that from donor a donor community that may not want to see a big fight and their money wasted on that. So that part is legit. The part about these two guys going at each other, uh, they're going to have to demonstrate why one's better than the other. So that's just, it's just going to happen. And 10 years ago, I would have told you, that really hurts you in the fall. I don't think the public's memory is that long anymore. I think we've seen some really brutal primaries here um, in, in all the recent cycles. Um, and Republicans have come out on top, so I don't think it's a. I don't think it's well, a killer. It was a very tac tactful response and something that a state chairman would say. So it was very good, <laughs> even though we it's know something it's not I don't true. aspire to. <laughs> <laughs> we have that on the record now. Yeah. Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill this week applauded new policies from the Federal Department of Justice aimed at toughening sentences for drug offenders. The new policies at the federal level instruct federal prosecutors to pursue the most serious penalties possible against drug and violent offenders, while also ensuring they observe mandatory minimum sentencing. The policies undo those created by former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder under the Obama administration. Indiana Attorney General Hill applauds the change, saying it helps reverse a recent trend at the federal level of what he calls becoming too lenient toward criminals. John Katzenberger, is the sort of thing that uh, General Hill is applauding here, is that smart law enforcement policy? Uh, well, it goes against the trends. Um, Indiana has recently gone through a complete overhaul of its uh, criminal code and uh, with the eye toward reducing sentences, except in the very worst cases. Um, we saw over the course of the last eight years the federal prison population had come down because of the release of a lot of nonviolent offenders or first-time drug offenders who'd been caught up into the uh, mandatory sentencing guidelines that were there before. And you saw a big expense and a big expansion of the prison system in the United States. Um, there had been a lot of energy toward reducing that. Now, that doesn't mean you don't want to put bad people away, because you do. Uh, but I think that, you know, creating another situation where you have judges that are handcuffed and can't use discretion in cases, where you have people who are committing nonviolent crimes being sent away for a very long time, um, those are going against the trends, and they're going to end up costing a lot of money. And it's, it's, the previous studies have shown that it's, it's got a negligible effect on the overall crime rate. The, the policies that, that Hill was applauding here are federal policies. They have to do with federal prosecutors, federal crimes, which obviously uh, Curtis Hill has nothing directly to do with. Was this a shot, was this, or at least was this a nod at, at the Indiana General Assembly, like, hey, Working good up there. Should have worked good down here. I don't really take it as that. I'm not too surprised. I mean, he was a, a tough-on-crime prosecutor, and a lot of prosecutors, even though Indiana did do a criminal code reform, a lot of prosecutors didn't want them lowering those sentences, and that was quite a negotiation during that a couple years ago. 
and you know on, on the drug offenses specifically. So I'm not surprised that he is backing Sessions on that, and I also don't think it's any sort of you know overall shot at the lawmakers here in Indiana. I think it's just his personal belief and his you know tough on crime approach that he's had for years. John said this kind of goes against the tide that we've seen in states across the country. But with the change at the federal level and with attorneys general like Curtis Hill applauding that sort of move, are we starting to see the tide go back the other way? We've spent a lot of time trying to sell, particularly the Republican base, frankly, of the political constituencies that have been kind of the lock them up and throw away the key crowd. It's been Republicans, but the data really doesn't bear out that that does anything to reduce crime, really. Particularly on, I think the, what we're going to talk about today, um, strategies to attack the addiction crisis. That has got to be a multi-tier enforcement is definitely part of it, uh, and this is what that's what um, Attorney General Hill is, is speaking to. Uh, but it's got to be a multi-layered approach, and it's got to it's got to focus on treatment and prevention to begin with. Because this has to do with federal policy, and that's not something that Curtis Hill has to do with directly, what's the point of sending out this statement? Well, I mean, he obviously has political ambitions. Fortunately, Sessions has very little to do with, uh, with uh, drug enforcement generally. I mean, the number of prosecutions at the federal level are small compared to what states do. And one of the best things that the Indiana General Assembly did in recent years was to reform the criminal justice system. We... One thing 30 years has told us is we can't incarcerate our way out of the drug crisis. We've, we've locked and locked and locked, and we've spent astronomical amounts of money on building prisons and keeping people incarcerated, and it hasn't worked. It hasn't affected the drug crisis, and it hasn't affected the overall crime rate. So when they approached it this last time in a bipartisan fashion in the legislature, they really got something good accomplished. He should not try to undermine it just to score political points, and that's what he's doing. Well, Mike O'Brien just previewed it for you. Indiana's new drug czar unveiled the governor's action plan this week for addressing the state's opioid crisis. At a meeting of the state's drug task force, Drug Treatment Enforcement and Prevention Executive Director Jim McClelland rolled out the governor's plan to deal with the epidemic. Strategies include reducing the incidence of substance abuse disorder, improving substance abuse treatment, developing McClellan's ability to serve stakeholders, and enhancing substantial community-based collaborations aimed at prevention, treatment, and recovery. The General Assembly this past session allocated $5 million to McClellan to use at his discretion. Nikki Kelly, these strategies in the governor's plan seem pretty obvious. I mean, they were, they were very broad, like, let's reduce the, num the amount of substance abuse disorder. Well, yeah. Is this a tacit acknowledgment, though, that under Governor Mike Pence, the drug task force that he created didn't do that much? I don't know. I do think part of the problem that they created in announcing this was calling it a strategy. It, it wasn't a strategy. It's a six-page document about their goals. Like, we need to reduce the number of people who start even using, you know, for instance, painkillers. You know, we have to look at, we have to expand treatment. We have to do that. But then there wasn't the second part, which is, how do you do those things? Um, I am surprised that under the previous administration, under former Governor Pence, that there wasn't a similar document of sort of, you know, your basic goals for a group. Um, maybe there was, and they just tweaked it a little bit. But I do think by labeling it a strategy, it made it underwhelming when it came out. Governor uh, Holcomb campaigned on this. It was one of his five pillars uh, as he started the legislative session. Uh, it was something that, that was applauded, really. Uh, he applauded the legislature. The legislature applauded him after session. He touted Jim McClelland as the new drug czar, and this is the first big thing we've seen out of him. 
uh, underwhelmed? <laughs> no, I got to give them a little bit of credit um, because literally very few things happened in the previous four years. Um, the fact that the General Assembly has appropriated, I believe, $10 million uh, over the biennium for the, the right. commission to do its work um, says something about how serious they are in this effort. And so the General Assembly ended about a month ago uh, or three weeks ago. Um, they've been in place a little longer than that. And I understand Kelly's or Nikki's uh, point exactly. Um, but I think it's still a little too early to, to be underwhelmed by the group. I think that they need some more time to develop the back end that, that Nikki was talking about. I guess my confusion about. is I feel like it's we already had a group. So I guess I'm struggling between... You had a group that didn't have any support from the executive. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any, you know, nobody was saying, hey, how about this? Let's get this done. And I think you have that and with, the, with Governor Holcomb. And he's going to hold these people accountable. And he's got people in place who are capable of doing it. Can Jim, Jim McClelland... Uh, be a difference maker in this area? You can certainly, if you put the resources in it, and, and I think this is a step. It's maybe right. a baby step, but it's a step in the right direction. The, the problem is compounded by the fact that unless you deal with the unemployment in these areas right. where the drugs are endemic, and unless you deal with the mental health issues in these areas where the drugs are endemic, you're not going to get to the root sources of the problem. And when you have Governor Holcomb calling for the repeal of the Affordable Care Act and, and curtailing Medicaid, which treats some in, uh, enormous percentage of the people involved in this, I, you know, we're at cross purposes here. I agree we have to have a strategy, and it has to be fleshed out in detail as to how we're going to deal with it, because we have a real problem in the state, and just, you know, burying our head in the sand isn't going to make it go away, it, nor will locking them up. To that point, and a big part of, of this plan or this strategy or the goals or whatever you want to call it was um, uh, finding more more. Uh, local collaborations for prevention and treatment and recovery and all of those things, but does can you reconcile that with supporting right now a health care bill at the federal level that would significantly curtail funding for things like mental health and, 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 and drug, drug addiction, addiction treatment? I think you, yeah, I think you can, because I think the proposal at the federal level, the crux of it is handing this off. It may actually, in fact, be easier for the state to fashion a program that, that, that gets, to where, uh, gets the money where it's, where it's needed to be, provided the money follows from the federal government, right? I, mean, I that's, thought that's what that's, HIP 2.0 was. It, well, it, it is, and you can and expand And that's the Affordable Care Act. It, you can expand, and the proposal at the federal level is to block grant Medicaid back to the state so they have the flexibility, but they also have to make sure you have the funding, right? Yeah, well, so, they won't. So. Well, let's not to conclude that, but, you know. Yeah, they were holding up the money ago, for the subsidies now. The bill, so. They're trying to pass. <laughs> so we're, we're making, we're making big leaps They're here. trying to prevent the subsidies I, from being paid now. They're holding it, back the money. I think it's money. worth putting this into context in defense of the, Pence, the previous administration, the Pence administration. Five years ago, it was a big deal to go talk about this in, in Hamilton County. And when Governor Holcomb, now Governor Holcomb, was on the campaign trail, um, you know, he, he campaigned with Mitch Daniels when they talked about meth occasionally. We're everywhere we went on the campaign trail in the governor's campaign, we'd run into somebody in all corners of the state that was talking about heroin and prescription drug abuse. That's what's changed. You have to change the strategies and the money and the investment that goes into this. So I think it's unfair to penalize the, uh, the Pence administration for that. State Superintendent Jennifer McCormick this week expressed concern at two vacancies on the State Board of Education. There are 11 seats on the State Board of Education, but two appointed by the governor became vacant in January after one member joined the Department of Education and the other became a state senator. More than four months later, those seats are still unfilled. State Superintendent and Board Chair Jennifer McCormick says having only nine members since January is limiting representation around the state. 
One of the open seats is for the 1st Congressional District, which covers Gary Schools, a district in financial turmoil, and East Chicago Schools, an area with a lead contamination crisis. And Delaney, simply put, what's taking so long? Look, I'm kind of glad they didn't fill them. I mean, those waivers of the failing schools weren't granted because they didn't have a majority on the board. So that's actually a good thing. I think if I were Jennifer McCormick, I'd be concerned about that, but I'd be more concerned about Betsy DeVos coming to Indiana to talk about how we have to put out more vouchers because they're now talking about cutting more than $10 billion out of the federal education budget. Say goodbye to work-study, say goodbye to student loan forgiveness for, for people working in the public sector, and on and on and on. And that would be my concern if I were the superintendent here. And we are talking more about the DeVos visit next week after she comes on Monday. But, Mike O'Brien, does this reflect poorly on Governor Holcomb that he hasn't filled these two vacancies? I don't think it does. Um, he's taken a methodical approach to a lot of these. These are long-term appointments. Um, they make substantial decisions on education policy in the state, and it's you know worth it to get it right and take a little time to make sure you get the right people in there. All right. Finally, President Trump this week, in a commencement speech to the Coast Guard graduates, said no politician in history has been treated more unfairly than he. Michael Bryan, can you think of anyone who's been treated more unfairly than Donald Trump? Me with this question. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody, anybody who well, comes about, up. I, mean, I seem to recall Nelson Mandela being in prison at all. You know, he went to Washington. He was going to blow things up. He was going to take charge. And now he's whining. And he's whining constantly about how unfair people are to him because of the things that he's done. I, I don't get it. Would you have enjoyed the commencement speech, though? Heck no, I wouldn't have. It sounded horrible. <laughs> I mean, if, if I had spent all that time in the Coast Guard Academy, had made it through and was about to be commissioned, I would have been pretty disappointed, honestly. All right. That's Indiana Week in <laughs> Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast to this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.